I'm already starting the podcast and you're interrupting. Please don't interrupt. During the- you have to tell me when you're starting. So I like, I'm, I'm going to mute starting. myself. We're already rolling. This is already happening. Like this is all happening. So you're listening to Get Found Recovery, the podcast. That's how I want it to sound. This is our first ever podcast. This is about, I don't know, probably two years in the making that we've wanted to do this or push to do this or people have pushed us to do this. So I want to thank all friends and family who have, you know, kind of pushed us in this direction and asked for this podcast. I'm excited to be behind a microphone. Again, Get Found Recovery is helping families and people with, uh, or people who suffer from addiction, find each other through recovery. My first guest today is the founder of Get Found Recovery, the beautiful, the talented, the wonderful Lindsay Yurek, my wife. Lindsay, welcome to the show. I'm excited that this is our first show together. (laughs) I'm excited. Thanks for having me. Oh, no problem. And for full transparency, I'm in the Get Found studio, which we posted already on Instagram. And we've asked people to to send us any questions about recovery or addiction that we might be able to answer. And you are upstairs in your office. It's the same office you've been stuck in for the last nine months during what is one of the most difficult times besides for my active addiction that I've ever lived in. So we're going to try to do it like this because what we want to do is is do it on Zoom and have other people from around the country uh, join us. You will, of course, you're my first guest, but you will, of course, be uh, a co-host or I will be your co-host. This is kind of your show and I'm just here to uh, be funny and we'll have other people on and talk about their struggles with with anything. So first, I I just want to get into kind of how this all came about and how it all started. It's funny when I thought about doing this show, I thought about, oh my God, I have to tell my story again, right? Seven years recovered, uh, seven plus years recovered, coming back from death essentially and living and learning how to live without my DOC, which is which is alcohol and DOC meaning uh, drug of choice and learning how to live without it and all those milestones and all those steps I had to take to get here. But I decided people have probably already heard that story. And if you haven't heard that story, you can go to getfoundrecovery.com. You can go to Lindsay's Facebook page, my Facebook page. We talk about it all the time to nauseum for for me anyway. Um, I thought, well, let's not talk about me today. Down the road, we'll hear my story hundreds of times. And uh, because it should be all about me, because that's how it is being being an addict should be all about me. But today, it's going to be all about you and, you know, learning about how this all came about and how Get Found Recovery started, kind of what drove you there, you know, taking the brand to the next level. So I wanted to first ask you, when did kind of get found recovery start to become uh, tangible in your mind, right? Where it was, okay, maybe I should start this company. When did that all start? Um, so I would say it was a few years um, after you had come home from treatment and we were just figuring things out and trying to figure us out, trying to figure our relationship out. And I think organically, we were just very open about our story and just all the hard times we were having and you go, going into the hospital and having to go to physical rehab and going to treatment for seven weeks. And I was just really open about it to people. And over time, people started coming to me with someone in their lives who was battling with addiction. So I would just talk to them about what I went through and what I did and as a spouse or as a loved one. And a lot of people just kind of kept coming. And so I had said, huh, Like, it just seems if we're just open and honest, people want to hear our story. And I think it just made people feel less alone of 
the stigma that addiction has on it of it's so much shame and that's not what it should be. And I'm, you know, I don't want people to feel how I felt. I felt very alone and I, I felt very isolated and I was embarrassed and, um, during my, during my active addiction, right? Yeah. And, and I felt stupid. Like, how did I not know? And like, I just, I had all those feelings. So I don't ever want anybody else to feel like that. So that is why I think I've just been really open about it. And it just came about, I think we were celebrating your sixth anniversary of sobriety. And we had just said, let's just do it. And we started to do it. And that's kind of how it came about. And let's talk about that for a minute, because one, I think it's super important. And I think right off the bat, we learned that we were going to have to talk about my addiction. We were going to have to talk about our recovery process as a couple, but it really happened inside of rehab, right? Because, you know, when I was inside rehab, I missed two weddings, two of my best friends. I was in their weddings. I missed both of their weddings. And to me, to this day, it still tears me apart inside, but you attended them and alone. It must've felt very weird, but one of my counselors inside of rehab, the day I graduated and the day you were going to go to a wedding, I was still waiting to get on a plane to come back. We made a conscious decision that a wedding right after rehab was probably not a good idea, right? But you talked to my counselor and, you know, she kind of told you, like, be straight up, right? Yeah, I will never forget that moment. So I went, I, you had two weddings and I felt that they're basically family to us, our friends, right? And so I felt it was my duty to represent both of us there and not miss such a special occasion for them. Was it hard? Yeah, it was really hard. I kind of felt like all eyes were on me, but I had a really core group around me that basically lifted me up through everything. But the one, the second wedding that I attended, I was really nervous about because I just felt it was going to be a little bit gossipy. I remember being on the phone with your counselor and I was like, Gretchen. She was hardcore, I'm, by the way. She was, yeah. she was hardcore. And I said, Gretchen, I'm really nervous to go to this wedding. I don't know what to say to people. And she just, she said to me, you tell them Adam up he's getting his shit together and he'll be home tomorrow and i was floored i didn't even know i was just like oh okay okay oh mm -hmm, okay got it and so i remember going to the wedding and everything was fine it was great it was so beautiful It it was a wonderful wedding and i remember someone had come up to me at the wedding and said where's adam I didn't even, the thought process didn't even happen. I just vomited the words that she told me straight to him. And he was just like, oh. And everyone around him was like, oh. But it felt really good. It felt like I wasn't hiding it. I just was like, yep, this is the situation. This is where we are. He'll be home tomorrow. And I just kept moving. And And it it felt good. Yeah, it was kind of funny because it was my counselor who told you to do it. So I had to go along with it. But I think too, you learned right away that, you know, the seven months, seven weeks, sorry, that I was in rehab, a treatment facility, that this was the woman who was kind of leading me. And uh, you were like, oh my God, she is, she is real. She is no hold bar. Like she wants the truth and she wants you to deliver the truth constantly. And I think that's something that you and I decided to do. 
you a long time ago and you kind of you kind of let off in that in that sense yeah I just think it, it it's accountability right I think that's the biggest piece of it is just being accountable for your actions and we both were by doing something like that it just like lifted that weight of like yep this is where we are and this is our situation and we're okay so leading up to that I mean one not to talk about myself but to just get people there <laughs> <laughs> all right to talk about myself but just to get people there you know I spent a lot of time in the ICU and then went into a physical rehab facility like Lindsay said and then went to rehab for seven seven weeks so essentially you and I were apart from each other for about three months you were taking care of me a lot of people don't know uh, you saved my life with a lot of decisions you made when I was inside of the hospital and then the essential push to get me to go to rehab which it was one of the best things I've ever done in my life it's, it was a fantastic rehab and and I'm super happy I went there I learned a lot of stuff and it's been able to keep me clean for seven years but you learned all this because your mother had issues with the same drug of choice which was alcohol talk about that for a minute oh lord where to start um so I didn't find out I didn't know my mom had a problem with alcohol till I was in my 20s you were actually <laughs> I think I, I think I broke the case wide open yeah I I just I just didn't know takes one um, takes one to know one I think I guess I yeah I just didn't know and then it just got to a point and I was told stories right as I was younger of when she was in the hospital, why she was in the hospital, which obviously wasn't the truth. And, you know, I, I just didn't know. But it was one of those things when your parents tell you something, you just believe it because they're your parents. And um, there was a time where I could just tell something was wrong. And my dad started to find things in the house. He started to find bottles hidden all over the house. And we, you know, we tried the, you know, at that point, I didn't know anything about addiction. And at that point, I just remember being like, just stop. If you love me, you'll stop. You'll stop. Please stop. You know, you're hurting me. Please stop. And I obviously know now she was not doing this to hurt me. But there was there was a time where it hurts regardless, right? Yeah, yeah, it hurts. It hurts regardless. And, you know, I vividly this is a story I, I don't or a vision I don't think I'll ever forget is I went down the street to go to the grocery store. You were with me. We were walking into the grocery store and I see my mom coming out of the liquor store. No words were spoken. I just put my hand out and she put the bottle of vodka she just bought into my hands and she walked to her car and we walked to my car and nothing was said. And then I remember just, you know, pouring it out. Yeah. Um, I think we both poured it out. It was like tainted for sure. I mean, I, I felt like, oh, I just got a bo bottle of vodka. And this was early on in, in my 20s when I didn't really know I was, you know, had a big issue. I knew I liked to do it. And you kind of handed me that bottle. And I was just like, man, this is tainted. And we dumped out the bottle of booze. And, and we were actually going to a friend's house, I, I think. And for you to experience that as, as a child of a family member with um, an addiction, to alcohol must have been tough. Yeah, it was really hard. It just, I didn't know what to do. I didn't know where to turn. Again, I was, I was embarrassed that my mom had a problem with alcohol and this is what it was and that she needed to go to AA and she needed to go to rehab and all of these, all of these things. I, I didn't, nobody really knew and nobody had any idea of what was going on and how bad it really was. And 
I didn't know how bad it really was either because I didn't live in that house. So my dad was really giving me like the Cliss Notes version of it. Right. And it wasn't that, that bad what, or what he wanted to tell you or to keep it to keep you safe. Yeah. And and I appreciate that, but it's also hard because you start to feel like everyone's lying to you right. and nobody's telling you the truth. And it goes back to that just feeling stupid. So that was really hard. I mean, my mom was, I think she went to uh, multiple treatment centers. It didn't take for her, you know, the first few times. And luckily for her, luckily for me, luckily for our family, she was able to get to find sobriety and to find recovery. And I'm grateful for that, that she was able to do that. It took a couple of years, right? Yeah. Different, a lot of different things you did to kind of push her back into rehabs and things like that. One was writing a letter, cutting off communication for a little bit. Talk about a couple things that you did because when you're dealing with someone going through addiction, you also have to deal with how you're coping with it. Um, talk about kind of the tools that you got along the way, some of the things that worked, some of the things that didn't. So I didn't even know where to start. I just remember being really just depressed and sad and really it got to a point where I was just waiting for a phone call to someone for someone to tell me that she did, she's dead. Mm-hmm. Um, that's how bad it got. And I remember I was lucky enough to find Al-Anon. And for me, I basically went crawling into an Al-Anon room. And for those who don't know what it is, it's um it's for families for people that are battling addiction. It's AA, just the other side. Mm-hmm. Um, luckily for me, I you know I crawled into those rooms and I went with my dad and I started to see other people that were dealing with the same thing that I was dealing with. And I didn't, I started to not feel very alone. And I met some wonderful people and I met a one woman who, who had been through it and started to really help me and started to help me focus on myself and focus on what I had control over and focus on what I had to do for me and not for her. Because I started to understand at that point that I don't have control over what she's doing and I can't convince her to stop. It doesn't work like that. And I think that was the biggest piece for me. That took a long time, mind you. Like, I, I don't want you to think it, I don't want anybody to think it was a quick, like, oh, I went to a meeting and this is how it, Met a that took me, to yeah, that took me a really long time. One, because I'm a control freak, right? I want to control situations. And I, I, I didn't say that. <laughs> I didn't say that. And so I think that's where I started to gain those tools of focusing on myself. And that, oh. like you had said, like the letter that I I had written my mom, it got to a point where it was just so toxic, our relationship that right. I decided for the benefit of my health and my mental state, I couldn't talk to her anymore. And, but I left one piece of communication open that if she did want to communicate with me, we could communicate via letter. And we did that for about a year and a half. Yeah, that's right. It was, it was tough. It was a tough go. Well, my question is um, about Al-Anon. Your dad went as well. Did he bring you? Did you bring him? I kind of forget that. He, I went with him for the first time. He was going already. And so I went to my first meeting with him. Is it free to go? It's free? Yes. 
Yep. Okay. Did yep. and and I just listened. The first couple times I went, I just listened. Now this woman you said helped you, is she considered a sponsor? So it's the same exact thing as AA. So there's a meeting going on in the other room with people with addiction who are talking about their feelings. And then I this is how I just see it, is that there's another room of people who are yelling about those people in the other room, or are they dealing with their own stuff to get past you know, explain it to me because I've never been in that room. I've always kind of wondered what you guys all talk about. So just kind of explain that. So no, it's not like a classroom where there's there's people dealing with substance use disorder in one room and then the families of the other. It doesn't technically work like that. But it's it's like any time you're looking, if you're looking at, for an AA meeting, you find it. Um, for me, this was at a church to find an Al-Anon meeting. I'm sure there was a, I'm sure there was a, you know, AA meeting somewhere locally. But no, the point of Al-Anon is to not focus on that family member that's battling this addiction. The point is to try to focus on you and to focus on what you have control over and to focus on yourself and how you can make changes for yourself, not to make changes for anybody else. And that alone is hard because you're watching someone you love fall apart and you want to help them, but there's only you can't there's nothing you can do if they don't want you, to help it comes to a point where you can't it's just it's oh this person needs to go on this journey by themselves and you start helping yourself and, and finding tools right and, yeah the, but the thing is there's always love right there's always love i never i never lost the love for my mother i knew that this is not who she wanted to be i knew this wasn't the the person she set out to be. She was an amazing mother when I, you know, growing up and, but this disease took control of her and I couldn't do anything for her. She had to do that work herself. And that's what I had to learn. Right. It's crazy. You know, and then your mother gets sober and then we, we lose her to complications, um, to a surgery. Right. And that kind of left, left a scar in your heart. Yeah. (sighs) Yeah, it's hard to talk about. The thing with my mom is, unfortunately, she did the damage to herself prior to her being in recovery. So with all the drinking she did, she had cirrhosis of the liver and her liver was shutting down. It wasn't functioning. So she was put on a transplant list to get a new liver. And miraculously, she did, um, which, you know, I'm blessed. We're blessed that she was called. So she went in for the, the transplant and the transplant took, and unfortunately, she died of infections from the hospital that she was in. So it's just, it was really crappy. It was just a big kick in the face. And we just had a baby, you and I, you know, our daughter was two months old when she died. So that was a lot to take in mentally, emotionally, physically, everything. It pretty much gutted me. Yeah, it was a tough road for her. And it was, there was probably, you know, even five years before that, she's a cancer survivor too. She had breast cancer. I think when we first met, and she um, had to go through that whole thing. And so she had a tough, man, she had a tough nine years. And looking back, that's got to be a hard journey for anybody, regardless of whether you have a substance abuse disorder, if you have it or not, you know, to go through that, to kind of get around that and and deal with that and then deal with your addiction and ultimately, you know, passing away. It was really tough. She was an amazing woman. She was funny. I don't think she always understood my jokes. That's for sure. She would no, always, she didn't. Oh my God. She'd always be like, I don't get it. 
And <laughs> so I don't know if she ever liked me or not. I'm not. I'm not too sure. She just. No, never, she did. Yeah. Well, I hope so. I hope so. She was very. Uh, she's very funny. You do things now that remind me of her, uh, especially when you want to buy something expensive because that would remind. <laughs> Your mother was very bougie, and uh, there's no there's no uh, getting around that. She liked uh, her things, and uh, you took a little bit of little bit of that. So I always like to call you Peggy once in a while. So we do miss her, but you know, God, it, it's 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 hard to say that there's a silver lining behind it. But two years later, you then deal with me and my my uh, my crumbling, I guess. Yeah, life was really just the universe just wasn't in my favor. I don't think for a bit. I yeah. So you so my mom died, and then we had a baby, and pretty much for the next year and a half, right? Two years, you were starting to spiral yourself. And the one story that I I do always remember is my aunt, who's my mom's best friend, telling me that my mom and her were talking and my mom was saying that you had a problem with alcohol. But she said, I can't say anything because nobody's going to believe me. Right. And so, and I don't don't know if I would have, I I don't know if I would have believed her if she said it to me. Yeah, it's funny. People with, um, people in recovery like myself recover recovery you know we'll get into that in another that's a whole other show i'd need an hour to talk about being recovered or being in recovery we kind of get this drunk dar where we know if other people have problems because we really see it in our in ourselves so i know i know in our personal life uh or on if we see someone in television or something you know anything like that I, it kind of goes off for me sometimes and i'm just like man this person needs help and but there's really some Sometimes nothing I can I can do. So um, I'm sorry. Didn't mean to interrupt. Continue. <laughs> it's the Adam Show. That's all. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, there is. I'm used to it by now. Uh, where did I leave off? So I would say, I, you know, I wasn't in a good headspace at that time when when she died. Uh, we had a newborn, so I was really not in a good headspace. Um, having a newborn, having zero sleep, having no idea how to do the mother thing and just not trying to damage this tiny little human. So yeah. that was a lot of pressure. And then I think too, now that I can, now that I've looked back at this, I think with our daughter, I had lost all control in my life, all of it. So she was like the only thing that I had control over. So I was so helicoptery on her, right? So I had to do everything. No one could do it better than I could. No one could do it right. It was the only way I could do it. Right. I started, you know, and that's just exhausting yeah. to not allow anybody to help you. And then I think with us, we started to really have distance between us because you started to get jealous that there was a baby that I was giving my attention to a baby and I really was only focused on her. So I wasn't giving you any attention and you didn't like that. And I think that was the beginning of the really bad downward spiral um, for you. I mean, I was I was having my own mental spiral. Yeah, I mean, a down. lot of, a lot of stuff was thrown at us, and I think you know one thing for me was it is. I think a lot of people don't understand how much children change a situation, and you have your girlfriend, and then your fiance, and then your wife, and you're having this amazing time, and you have this child, and you think things are going to be semi the same 
and it completely gets spinned a 180 and you're like I don't even know who this woman is because you turn into a mother and it's amazing to see in in a sense but it's hard for a spouse because I, I'm not changing right a baby comes I take care of baby I get food for baby you know <laughs> like that's how we are as men we're essentially just a caveman just you know going through those things so nothing changes within us and then when you have a child everything changes and things become things that were uh, allowed to be able to get away with stop stop happening so I think you know and then you lose that partner because that partner starts to share themselves with the child and I didn't understand that as 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 a guy and um, I might get some slack for that and, and that's okay but my relationship with alcohol became number one because I really didn't have another outlet and it became easier for me to just implode inward to um, kind of take it out on, on the booze because I was losing a piece of you to this bag of bones as my therapist called it that we were taking care of yeah it, it was definitely a hard time and we we lived in that phase for a solid year and a half to two years and I would I would say you know when we were probably coming up on that two-year mark we were we weren't even speaking it got to a point where I had noticed that your drinking had gotten really bad and I had to figure out like okay what can I do right thanks to to what the tools I had learned before and going to therapy and trying to to figure out. And so at that point, I just realized, okay, I can take care of me and I can take care of our daughter. That is what, that's my job, right? And so that's what we started to do. And you and I just started to become like roommates and we were just living under the same roof, but we had zero communication. We weren't doing anything together. I was picking her up, dropping her off, going to play dates without you, going places without you. We weren't doing anything. everything fam everything we were doing like it was so bad it was so bad where people would be like where's adam oh he's just at home and i was and at that point i really wasn't even making excuses for you anymore i was just like he's not coming and i think at that point your family your parents started to sense something but i don't know if they really wanted to like admit it yet right and my dad i had been talking to him and he knew what was going on and kept trying to do what we you know i was just trying to go to al-anon meetings and go to therapy and you know it's hard to do when you have a, a young kid and so that's kind of where we lived for a while and it was very ugly and unpleasant and it was hard for you too because you know your mother was a hider, a sneaker, um, someone who would hide their booze. And a lot of people do this. A lot of people do it. Um, I went to rehab with a woman who would hide her alcohol in the backyard and draw a treasure map to find it, um, put X's on sticks, put on a piece of paper where exactly it was. Because when you hide something and you're drunk, you forget where you hide it. And I can tell you that it's happened to me a lot because I also too was a hider. Um, I think the straw that broke the camel's back for us was when you found your first bottle of, of vodka hidden in the Tupperware drawer. Oh my gosh. It was plastic. plastic, So I thought it matched red top. Oh my gosh. It was like, I just did like huge eye roll of, (laughs) um, (laughs) 
just the amount I, I, I visualize all of this. Like I can see all of this. I remember finding the first bottle and screaming, like, I can't believe you're making me do this again. Like I already did this with my mom. I can't believe you. I was so pissed that you were doing this to me. And it, it was just so fresh still. And here I am again, less than two years later doing it again. I just, that was a lot to take. And then I remember that when you were in the hospital, I looked at you and you had come out of detoxing and you were pretty coherent. And I had said to you, where is it? Just tell me where everything is. And you started to just tell me where you hid stuff. I got home. I was, oh my gosh, Adam, like going up the back of couches that you couldn't even, I found things in there. I found things in the basement, like paint kits I found things under mattresses, under, it was insane. I remember taking a picture of all of the stuff I found in the house and laid it out on the kitchen table. And I, I remember Nicole, my best friend was just like, oh my God. Not good. It's not it was, good. It was not good. And I came home later and, you know, it took me a long time to recover um, at learning how to eat again, learning how to walk again. And after coming home from rehab, uh, a year went by, I think. And I, th- I uh, we started this um, sober Saturday with friends and family who we thank for the recovery. And I remember we uh, started to play golf. I started to play golf again. And I remember saying to you, like, hey, I think there's a bottle in my golf bag. Can you go get it? and sure as sure as sugar it was uh it was in there right yeah one more one more bottle one more bottle and i don't know if i start to hide things if addicts start to hide things because they just don't want to deal with the spouse or the loved one anymore or it becomes a part of their addiction that this is what we do it's a very um it's a very weird thing i always tell people that I think hiding things is a way to get caught. Um, I think it's the subconscious, right? Because I always talk about ego and inner self, right? My ego is my addiction and it completely took over my life and consumed my inner self. And But the inner self is always trying to get out somehow. The inner self is the one who told you where all the, the bottles were. The inner self is the one who sat on the couch and said, I got to get to a hospital. The inner self is someone who says, you're not going to drink today. And I think the inner self is someone who said, hide it so that they can find it. Because if you didn't find these things and continue to push, I would be dead without someone intervening in my addiction. But it got so bad that I got home from a business trip working in healthcare and uh, my eyes started to turn yellow. You came home and that was kind of the beginning of the end. Yeah. And it ties back to my mom, right? I, I, if I had not gone through what I had gone through with her, I wouldn't have known what to do for you. And in a weird twisted way, I do believe that things are meant to happen for a reason. As terrible as they may be, I do believe that she set me up to save you. And yeah, I knew with your eyes yellow that you were going to die. And luckily for me, you didn't fight me when I said you need to go to the hospital. I think you were ready to give up too. I I think maybe the timing aligned and the everything and you were willing to go and that's kind of where it all started and it wasn't those next three four months were not pretty and they were very ugly and they were full of anger but here we are here here we here we are we did it and that's funny that brings me to 
I posted on Instagram a picture of uh, us getting into the studio today and doing our first podcast. And I asked people if they had questions. I have one right here that says, how did you survive? And to me, I think what they're asking is, how did you survive? How did I survive? Well, I had medicine and all kinds of stuff and doctors and Lindsay who had a gigantic book. Um, Talk about that. In the hospital, you had this gigantic notebook. It just, you took notes on everything, right? Oh yeah, my little black notebook. Um, well, it wasn't little, it was really big. And yeah, I just started to make sure that I was documenting everything. So when he was in the ICU, I was legitimately every day writing every name of a nurse who came in, every piece of medicine that he was given, what doctors came in, what his MELD score was, what his bilirubin scores were. I became just like so invested in this medicine that he was having. I mean, I I can talk about a little bit of like, I feel like it's a good question of like, how did I survive? Right. And barely, I would say, I I mean, luckily for me, I had already had the Al-Anon tools behind me. So that was, that was really helpful for me. I also was already in therapy. That was like another huge win because my therapist, I'd say this, that my therapist and my best friend, I think are truly the only ones who know every single detail of what happened Mm -hmm. in those, in those few months. And um, I had a great support system. I had friends, there were four, I had four girlfriends that were just incredible to me and I couldn't go anywhere because you know our daughter was two and so they would come to me and we would I would put her to bed and they would just sit with me and they would make me laugh right it wasn't about you it was about just like stupid things that went on through the day or something dumb they may have done that just made me laugh and Mm -hmm. they would bring me groceries and, and everyone was just incredible my dad and my sister would switch off coming up every other weekend to be with me so they could take um, our, our daughter out, you know, just out so I could either be at the hospital or just be doing things. And mind you, this whole time, I was working a full-time job. So, I, you know, job, I didn't... Mom, husband in the uh, ICU. And ICU is uh, intensive care unit for, for everybody to know. And and uh, that's 24 hours around the clock care. So you were also taking phone calls at three o'clock in the morning. Yeah, I was calling. I was calling because you were a terrible patient and they would call me and say, he ripped something out. Can he... I, we need to put uh, something in his neck. And I'm like, what? It's two o'clock. Okay, sure. Like it was just always, or they would call me at work and say, we have to do this procedure. And so like, those are the things I wrote in my black notebook of at this time, they called me to ask me this because I was so, everything was so all over the place and there was so much getting thrown at me that it was the only way I could keep track of everything. And the hardest part in all of that was the sole responsibility of you laid on me. And that's pretty heavy when I am the one having to tell your family, your mom and your dad and your brothers that you may not live. And that was hard. There was a lot. I mean, I was the battles that I was dealing with. You didn't even have to touch of everything that I was dealing with. You know, you're all the doctors, your family, them not agreeing with me, finding you rehab, finding you physical rehabs, which medicine should you be taking? Do I transfer you to another hospital? Which ambulance do I pick? Oh, there's bills coming in. I have to pay bills. Okay. I got to go to work. Okay. I need to leave at lunchtime because I'm going to go to the hospital, but I don't want our daughter to have any idea what's going on. So I'm going to pick her, drop her off normal time. 
I'm going to pick her up normal time and we're just going to keep it moving and she won't have any idea. And the first time we did tell our daughter or bring our daughter into this kind of awareness of the situation was uh, I didn't see her for six weeks, right? And I didn't see her until I was in uh, physical rehab in Massachusetts to learn how to walk again and, and eat and drink again and just get my body back into some sort of shape because, you know, the, the muscle atrophy kicked in. I, I was in a, I was in an, and strapped to a bed for a good part of three weeks and then another three weeks of a step-down unit. And um, so the first time I saw her was when you finally decided to, you know, bring her and uh, us have our first meeting. It was, it was a really hard moment for me, um, but I'm glad I got to see her. Yeah, I was not, I was never going to bring her to a hospital. That was never going to happen. Um, I just told her the whole time that daddy had a boo-boo and he was getting it fixed. Yeah, it was probably uh, maybe two months in and you were at the physical rehab and I strategically remember as long as you were like sitting down, you know, we could, she could come because mm-hmm. I just didn't want her to see you struggling to walk and all of that. So I yeah, still, we did. I think I still had a walker. Yeah, you did. I mean, we were talking yesterday and you, you said you came and I was in physical therapy and you remember just looking at me being like, oh my God, he's 85 years old. You did. I, I remember you being in rehab, like the physical rehab and just trying to walk and it was, it was not going well. <laughs> People go. take walking. Yeah, I mean, I never take, and it's one, it's another question that, that we got and I was going to get it more towards the end. That's one thing that I would never take for granted is, is um, the, just the ability to eat and the ability to walk. Um, it, it's, you just don't realize that you're doing it until it's taken away from you. Or essentially I took it away from myself with, with my addiction, but um, that was something that was beyond my comprehension of, of learning how to do again. Tell me the process of choosing, okay, he's getting better physically. Now we have to get him better mentally. I knew, I know myself, I was not having, I didn't want to really go to rehab or I, you know, I knew I needed some sort of help, but I was kicking and screaming. I thought it'd be more of a in and out rehab, same day, you know, in out, outpatient treatment, is it called? Yeah. Outpatient rehab. Yeah, you were thinking uh, you were thinking you were going to do what you wanted, which was not going to happen. A couple meetings a day, I'll be fine. But you yeah. had you had other plans. Yeah, I was not at that point. You were not coming home unless you were going to treatment for a while. It was just for the benefit of us and our daughter and you needed help, major help. So that was a that was something I knew I was, you know, planning to do and I knew I was going to have to do all the work because you weren't going to help. Luckily, so so there were a few places, right? There was one, I remember finding one place and I felt so good about it. And I was like, yes, he's going to go. And then they called me and they said, we can't take him. He's just too sick for us. And I was just, oh my God, like I, you were supposed to leave like that next day. And then my dad had called me and said, Hey, I have a phone number for you. Mm-hmm. Call, call this guy. And he'll help you find a place. And so I called and I said, here's what the situation. Is this, what, what was the phone number too? Do you remember? It was a place called Treatment Solutions. Okay. And they were wonderful. And they basically help you. And to be honest, I don't I don't even know if they're still around. I think it's um, the Addiction Center hotline now. They basically, I tell them 
kind of your situation and then they help narrow down places that specifically treat certain things and they had said okay so he said give me a little bit and I'll call you back and he called me back like a few hours later and he said we found a place we got him a plane ticket he's leaving tomorrow and I was like oh my gosh I remember coming to your place at the physical rehab and saying because you were getting discharged so you like needed a place to go like down to the last hour right yeah and so and then I had to coordinate with the physical rehab to the treatment center and coordinate all that and they basically discharged you the next day you came home we packed a suitcase and you left you weren't even in the house for five hours I don't even think no I don't even think think two hours I do remember I wanted something up in the bedroom whether it was a pair of shorts or I don't know I wanted something and I didn't and I was like I'm gonna go and I just remember you saying someone needs to follow him and that's when I was just like oh my god like I'm not getting out of this I the gig the the jig or gig or jig is up jig jig everybody knows that I have a problem everyone's on board about me going to this rehab that no one's like we're gonna we're gonna keep you here it was it was happening yeah we packed you your mom bought you a bunch of stuff and came over and we put a suitcase together for you and because I didn't fit in any of my old clothes I lost right you lost like I think you lost like 40 pounds or something you were basically skin and bones at that point yeah I was yeah I was not good so my mom had to buy me all the clothes and so yeah and then we just uh brought you to I brought you to the airport and I was terrified I was I didn't know where I had no idea where I was sending you it's not like I had a phone call and they were like oh yeah this is a great place and here's all our testimonials and then I started to say oh my god what if I'm sending him to like a cult and then I never see him again. I was, all these thoughts were like going through my mind, but it was also, I was like, he's still, he's got to go. Like it wasn't even a, I shouldn't have him go. It was, he's got to go. And well, and, and two, you've been taking care of me for the last six weeks, right? You've been the only one in charge of my decisions. You had to relinquish that control and watch yeah, it on a plane. Yeah, it was, that was hard. That was a really hard moment to watch you do that. But it was also, I think it was a relief for me because I got a break for those last however many weeks. That's all I was doing around the clock. And so it was just a really big relief. I think I felt relief once you got there and you, I remember you landed and then you got in a van and you went to the place and you called me and said, I'm here. And that was kind of the last conversation we had for a couple days. And we could talk about the strip searches another time. Yeah, we can Uh, talk about that. Let's uh, talk about being in treatment. There were some times where you were pissed and thought I was just at a day spa because of some of the photos. I remember people are like, are you riding a horse? Because on the website, yeah, it was something about massages there. And you you called and said, could you put more money on my card or something? I need a massage. And I was just like, are you freaking kidding me? I was so pissed off. And I did. I had a vision of like waterfalls and like you just getting a bathrobe and putting it on and then go getting a massage and putting cucumbers on your eyes while I'm sitting here like barely surviving and taking care of our daughter and working and bills and all this stuff and uh, and, ta- and dealing with your job, right? T- t- trying to take care of that. And oh my God, I was so pissed. I, I Yeah, I was just angry. Pretty much most of the time you were at treatment, I was 
angry at you. But you came with me the next year because I spoke at the rehab facility. I went back a year later and was able to be one of the keynote speakers there and talk to, what's the word I'm looking for? The people. The next graduating class. Yeah, the next graduating class or the people who just came in. And you saw it firsthand what what I was really dealing with at rehab. And I remember I showed you, we were on a back deck. We went through the halls. I showed you where our little rooms were. I showed you this tiny room. That was a classroom where I did get massages. And we got to a back deck to and to overlook kind of the, the pond or lake that looked so glorious on on the internet and you started to cry. I did because it wasn't what I pictured in my mind. It was not that at all. It made me sad because I started to think, oh my gosh, what you must have felt coming here. Like so scared and so alone. You don't know anybody and you had to do that. And so that made me feel just sad and a bit guilty in a way that I made you do this and how scary that must have been. Because I was, I guess I was putting myself in your shoes and I would have been terrified if that were me. It was scary. I remember my first night I had to go to the detox center and I was trying to tell them that I didn't have to detox because I already detoxed for six weeks and they said I still had to go. And I remember I didn't get to the detox center until late at night and they said, your bed is over in the corner somewhere in this dark space. And I went to go to my bed and there was um, a meth addict who was in detox, who was on the bottom bunk or the top bunk. And I, I tried to climb up into into the bunk because I thought that was my bed. And I remember he grabbed me and just started screaming at me and cursing at me and like, I'll kill you. I, I got no sleep that night. And it was a really scary moment. Kind of that whole process of, of getting into rehab, being by myself and then learning my way was, was an entirely scary process. But I, I'm grateful for it. I'm thankful for it. I'm thankful for you for getting me to this place. It, it saved my life and has kept me sober for the last seven and a half years, along with with other things that you and I do as far as our recovery together, right? Because I think going back to that question of how did you survive, it's my answer is easy. I survived because of, you know, the medicine, the doctors, and because of you and your decisions and moving me to a different hospital. But how did we survive as a couple? We survived as a couple. I think our grassroots was love, right? We we did love each other through all of this. We can, You can get angry with someone, you cannot like someone, but we did love each other. And I think I truly realized that it, it, the thought of losing you gutted me. I think that was the core of us being able to do this. But there's other things that come along with it, right? Is a big piece for me was utilizing all the tools I had learned over the years with you and my mom of just letting go of the control of things. And I knew for my mental state that if when you came home, I couldn't start questioning things or following you or checking on what you were doing or what you were drinking, you know, I couldn't do like that would have driven me bananas. And that would that would have ended us like, could you I can't even imagine trying to live like that. No, and, and I, I knew, think, and I knew too, sorry to cut you off. I knew too, that I couldn't do that to you, right? I knew that I couldn't live in our house with you looking over my shoulder and wondering if I was going to drink again, or if I had to get to a meeting or those kind of pressures, I knew that I couldn't let you live that life of always wondering. And I wouldn't, I wouldn't be able to, to live that life of you always looking over my shoulder. That would have been really hard. And for us to, and I've said this before, for us to kind of have that same understanding and never have that conversation with each other, that this is what we're going to do. I'm going to just let you get on your recovery journey. I'm still on my recovery journey 
and hopefully we meet at the same place. It's it's weird to me that we never even had a conversation about that's how we wanted to live our lives to get back together. But also couples therapy was was a huge help in us getting back together. Yeah, there was a lot. I mean, that there was a lot we had to do and, and couples therapy was where we had to be because we had to rebuild everything because there was nothing. There was nothing left. There was no trust. The only thing that was left was love, right? And right. we both wanted to, we both wanted to make it work. And so that's where, you know, us going to couples therapy and learning to, for me, really to rebuild that trust again, that was a lot of work, but we both put in the work, right? You were going to your therapist. I was going to my therapist. You were going, you were doing other therapy that you needed. I was focusing on stuff that I needed to do. So we were both working our own recoveries through this. And then we would come together and work as a couple together on this. So it made us better spouses and better friends and better parents. And it was just, it's a lot of work that we put in and still put in today. And if you could see Lindsay on the video and hopefully one day we'll be able to put this on a YouTube channel. You know, she kind of takes both of her hands when she talks about recovery and pushing them in the opposite direction. It's kind of like two magnets that just don't want to get along. And, but it, but it goes full circle and it comes around because recovery for family is doing it together, but doing the work separately from each other to find that middle ground of what recovery is going to be and what recovery is going to look like. And Linz, I, you know, I got to say a lot of people in our lives, and, and we do a lot of things for my sobriety. We have Sober Saturday, which is every June we have people come to our house and celebrate my sobriety. And it's my chance to thank them for always being a part of my life. And the other thing we do is a golf tournament that is called the Sober Cup. And it's it's so much fun. And my, my friends get involved with it. And we get ice cream trucks for the party. And it it's so much fun and people give me gifts and I've gotten plaques that are behind me and it's really great. But I think people, what people sometimes don't understand is how in awe I am of you and how you've been able to recover through all of this, through your mother, through uh, postpartum depression that we didn't even talk about with a, with a child and dealing with your mother's death while having a newborn, while having, you know, it was just, it was a mess. And, and the things that you went through and the things that you have recovered from are equally as great as me just being able to stay away from from alcohol. So a lot of times people are, uh, you're amazing, you're you're an inspiration and it, and it feels good to, to get those things, but you're also an inspiration to a lot of people. And I know you've already helped a lot of people through Get Found Recovery. And if you want to check out our website, it's getfoundrecovery.com. Check out our blogs. They're, they're helpful. They're thoughtful. And I like what you've done with the with the company and where this is going, but you've, you've helped so many people already. Do you just want to talk about one of your success stories with someone that you've helped with a kind of a situation similar to ours? We're not going to use people's names. Names. I know you got, I know you got a couple of them. Do you want to share one of them with us? Yeah, I just, for me is, I think this company is really just a passion for me of just wanting to help people that are in the same situation that I found myself in. And, you know, for one, I'll, I'll talk about, and I've talked about it throughout this podcast is, you know, I've had um, a spouse call me and say, you know, their significant other was having an issue and they were taking on everything and nobody knew what was going on. And, and it was just a lot and they had young kids. And I think I just told them that they have to start focusing on themselves. Right. And that it wasn't fair 
for them to be taking all of this on themselves and nobody else know, like their their spouse's family have any idea what was going on. And I think it came to a point where the conversation with her spouse was, I need you to do X or I need to involve others um, because I can't keep doing this by myself. And and I've said that to, to, to numerous people that I've talked to about, it's not fair to take that weight and just hold it on yourself. That's not fair to you to carry right. all that weight around. And I, you know, I'm happy to say that their, their spouse was able to get the help that they need and is living in recovery today. I'm not saying it was my words that did that. I'm just saying it helped maybe give a kickstart to them to help them find recovery and know that they aren't alone and give people the confidence that one, this shouldn't be a stigma. This is a disease and there, this is a treatable disease. That's what I try to tell people. This is a treatable disease and there's so much out there that we can help with. And that's just where I start with people is that don't be ashamed of this. This is something you're, you're not, you know, somebody you work with and they're going through their chemo treatments, you're checking on them. You're asking how they are. You're asking if there's anything you can do. There is no reason we shouldn't be doing the same things with people that have a substance use disorder. And and that's what I feel strongly about. And that's what I try to try to tell anybody that I talk to is you shouldn't be embarrassed. You shouldn't be ashamed, but you know what? Go through the process, but I'm here. So if I want to be here for you, I want to help you in any way that I can. And that's just where I come from. It's all from a place of love. And you're a huge advocate of people in recovery. You know, you work with organizations like TriCircle here locally and also Shatterproof. You've done some blogging for, and uh, you're a big advocate at work for it. And you've done things for the company to not just using your experience, you've also are certified in some things. Yeah, I became a peer recovery coach just this past year. So I went through training um, to do that. And it was wonderful. And just another way that I feel like I can help people. Also, you're certified in, in administering Narcam. And uh, it's something that you're very passionate about having it readily available to everyone you want the world to have it. I know Bill Clinton has an organization, uh, you were just a part of a three day long summit. Uh, talk about that a little bit. Yeah, I got to be part of Mobilize Recovery that um, his name's Ryan Hampton that runs this and he's just the most incredible human. He just does so many wonderful things for the recovery community. I had taken Narcan training, I think last year, and it's just overdoses are reversible and everybody should have a Narcan or naloxone, but it's a no, there's a nose spray version that you can get. And if somebody is going through an overdose, you could administer that and it would reverse an overdose. And it's just, there's too many deaths. There's too many overdoses happening and there's Narcan at our, it's there. And I just feel like it should be more readily available for people so that we're not having all of these overdoses happening because there is an epidemic that's happening and we need to get in front of it more. That's a whole nother, uh, you know, whole nother podcast, but, um, you know, but, but that's, and, and I think now, especially in the times that we're in, in the COVID world, it's, it's scary. It's really scary. The isolation and the loneliness. And, um, I think a lot more needs to be done right now, but we can save that for another time. Um, cause I know we're getting short on time, but that it's just, I think for me and, and what I do is I just try to be honest. I just try to tell people my lived experiences and show them that there is hope and that there is recovery and that this can happen because we are proof of that. Um, and so that's just what I try to tell a lot of people who I talk to. A family member right now listening who thinks hope is gone, uh, that they 
they think they've tried everything. They have tried everything. They feel like they're losing this person. What advice do you have for this this person who seems like it, it's almost hopeless at this point? I've been there. I felt that. I felt hopelessness. I've I felt there is nothing else. I felt I'm just waiting for a phone call. Like I've been in that place, but there is always hope. There is that's what I can say. There is always hope. There is always help. And I would say just try to focus on that and focus on you and focus on what you have control over, but don't give up that hope because it's there. Yeah. And, and we're here for, for that hope. Um, and hopefully our story um, inspires others to know that there is, there are happy endings. Um, it's hard work. It's not always easy. And you, you said COVID and COVID has not been, has not been easy on recovery. It's challenging. There are, there are many ups and downs, but um, as long as, as long as there's hope, that's all that's all you kind of that's all you kind of need and and this podcast i hope is is somewhere where people can come and listen for an hour or 45 minutes or um and and find some of that hope i I want this podcast lens as much as we you know have lived through addiction and talked about recovery i want this podcast to be more about addiction i want this to be whether you're recovering um from losing weight i want to hear someone's story about their journey on losing weight being in prison i I want to know you know a car accident motorcycle accident you know just everything we're all in some sort of recovery from something right we're all recovering from something and it fascinates me because there is no right way or wrong way of doing recovery um there is a million different ways fascinated with all of them um the definition in the dictionary should be like any way possible to get better is recovery so i'm hoping that this podcast going forward gives people not only tools to deal with addiction, but also tools to just deal with life in general and to be able to say, I know exactly what that person's going through. I know exactly how that person feels. One, I want to thank you for starting this company and uh, giving me the opportunity to grow with you and to be able to host this podcast. Again, I want to thank family and friends who have pushed us to do this this show. I I guess I have two questions left and I I think somebody put a funny question in. They didn't think I was going to answer it, but they said, waffles, chocolate chip or plain? Oh, um, chocolate chip. I would say neither. I'm going full blueberry. I think there's something about a warm blueberry pancake that I can't get over. I think chocolate in the morning are, are stupid. And, it's delicious. Oh God. It's just, an, it's just more of an excuse. You should only eat chocolate on Christmas morning on Christmas and on Easter and the day after Halloween. That's the only time you should be able to eat chocolate in the morning. I'm sticking by that. I'm going with blueberry. The other thing is what we take for granted. I already posed that question. Uh, I'm going to answer it first and then I'm going to let you answer. You know, what's something that you don't take for granted anymore? One thing for me is water. It's definitely the number one thing that I do not take for granted anymore. I didn't get to drink it for six weeks. Um, I got to suck on a sponge towards, towards the end. I was uh, fed intravenously with fluids. Um, to taste water again when I was able to drink was probably one of the greatest feelings I've ever had in my life. There's the movie about the guy who falls in the rock and has to cut off his arm. Do you remember? 127 hours. 127 hours. When he gets out and drinks the water and is running out and people are just giving him water, I understand that feeling. Um, it was it was a perfect betrayal by the actor. Um, help me out. What's the actor's name? Oh, damn. Franco. Oh, James no, Franco. James, yeah. James Franco. James Franco. Weird guy. 
but a, gr- a great actor. He's a great actor. So for him to portray that for me is exactly how that feeling felt for you. Are there things that you don't take for granted anymore through all these stories of, of your mother and, and me? For me, it's family, right? Mm-hmm. I never take my family for granted. And there's four of us now in, in our house. And I always call us the core four. And I say, as long as there's the core mm-hmm. four, then we're okay. So as long as we are all together and the four of us are together, everything's okay. You know, I, I hope people enjoy this journey of recovery with us. Uh, I hope we teach them things. Also, a part of my recovery is I, I like to joke. I like to be funny. I think it's okay to be funny. Um, I think it, it's one way of how I survived. It's a part of my recovery. Um, so I do in, enjoy joking. I know Amanda Knox, who I would love to have on this show, tweeted something about the last four years couldn't be as bad as the last four years of, of me being in, me studying abroad, something like that. And she got a lot of slack for that. I think it's okay for her to joke. She can be funny. It's her situation. So um, I want to thank you, Lindsay, for, for starting this company. I want to thank you for being on our first ever podcast. Woo-hoo! And, and um, I just hope we can all recover together. So thank you. Thank you for being on the show. Thanks. Good job. All right, guys. We'll talk to you. I'll be the found, on your soul. And every breath you try to breathe alone I'll be beside you so you know I'll be the